0: Thanks for stepping into that four minutes of family, finish up that conversation, grab a seat in some pew that you started in, or maybe a new seat, either way is fine. Hey, I know we just talked about it, but that beach day was super fun, so for our social outreach team, thank you so much. You guys did a tremendous job. Can we give them another round of applause? You know, we were just singing this song about God's faithfulness. And I just believe that he has been, in my life, he continues to show up and show his faithfulness through his people, you guys. And I was just reminded, like, in the last six months, we've launched all kinds of ministries from students to children's and crew midweek. We have seven different ministry teams here that are part of Coastline, and uh, I'm just thankful Uh, for you guys showing up and serving and be part of our teams and all the different ways that we're doing ministry together. I just want to say thank you. Uh, God has been faithful to Coastline. He's given us this beautiful space to worship in, and uh, what a blessing we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, You know, the only muscles I truly worked out yesterday were my mouth muscles. Uh, I worked it out perfectly. I happened to not bring running shoes. I thought we were going to run along the beach, and we ran along the strand, which... Oh, no, I guess I can't run barefoot. I have to stay and talk to people. So I got to talk to a lot of you. I got to talk to people who were just kind of walking down the strand and didn't know they were going to be talking to some guy about a new church in Redondo Beach. Uh, Shout out to my partners kind of in that of Joyce and Jenny. And it was just really fun. It was just a great moment of the South Bay learning that, hey, there's this new church here in Redondo Beach called Coastline, and I couldn't be more excited about it. And if you're not excited yet, uh, maybe you will be soon. So hang in with us and continue to travel. Uh, God's doing great things. Have you ever noticed in life that it's really easy to live with an us-them lens, to kind of have an us-them perspective in a lot of different things? I mean, we see it so dramatically. We saw it before 2020, but it got really heightened in the pandemic with our politics of kind of an us-them and anything that happens on the Hill. Like some people continue to want a smaller government and government hands off, and other people want a larger government to kind of give a greater hand to those in need. We we see it in places like the gas pump. Right? Like, I'm tired about you. I'm kind of tired of $5 a gallon gas. I'm old enough that I remember when it was under a dollar. And so you kind of have this tension in an us-them of like, hey, do we drill on federal land or do we continue to invest in renewable energy? We we even see it kind of within the church. For a long time, the church has struggled with an us, them, in regards to worship styles and worship formats. Is it traditional with an orchestra and a choir, or is it contemporary, like what we just enjoyed this afternoon? And and so there's these places that it's so easy to live with kind of an us-them framework. It seeps into our life. In fact, I was reminded we were doing our small icebreaker at our community group this last Thursday. And I think the last question we were trying to answer is, when you drive, are you a honker or a non-honker? Like, do you use your horn at anything and everything, or you do use your horn judiciously or almost never? Raise your hand if you're somebody who uses the horn. All right, the Lord loves you. (laughs) Other people might not, but the Lord loves you. But even in fun things like that, I was sitting back and I was, I had this in my mind as I was thinking about the sermon. It is so easy for us to live with kind of a, I am this and you are that. And the point for this evening, as we look into God's word together, is the text is going to say very clearly that while on this earth and we live life, it's so easy to have an us-them mentality, there's no room for it in the family of God. There's no us versus them in the family of God. It is only we. God has come and joined us in Pentecost, and now in his mission, he's calling us to join together. Last week, I've had the opportunity to kind of split Acts 10 into a two-part series because it is so rich with meaning and application for us. Last Sunday, we looked at the nature of this relationship we have with God, this reality that God is the one who's building his church, and yet he partners with us. Yes, us who don't run on the beach, us who would rather talk than put our bodies in motion, those of us that would rather put our bodies in motion and not talk to a single soul. He partners with all of us in his great work. And last week, we broke down what are those components of this partnership. We saw that God loves to partner with hungry hearts. God takes risks, and so should we. God allows us to wander and wander, and we'll come back to that this week. And God does preparatory work in us to work through us. So that's how God partners with us and works with us. And as he's joined us, he's got us on mission to bring together that which we tend to divide in our humanity. See, he joins us, his people, so that he can join us as a family across race, across ethnicity, across nation, and across culture. And that's what we want to look at tonight as we close out our look in Acts chapter 10. So this is a very important truth. So would you bow your head and pray with me as we ask God to do what only he can do. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we get to gather. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. What joy we had on the beach yesterday. And Lord, we pray that in this moment that you would allow us to rather quiet our hearts and minds and consider the words you have from us in the Bible. Or Lord, if we are flooded with thoughts and attitudes Decisions that need to be made from this week and into next week. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit and your word would converge. And God, give us what we need. Lord, help us to hear from you this evening. So Lord, if we are loud internally or we're quiet, we're praying and asking that you would show up. And that in your faithfulness that we just sang about and in your goodness, that Lord, you would be the one who speaks to us. God, would we lay our lives before the text and before your truth this evening? And God, we pray that we would feast on it, that we would learn, that we would grow, and that we would be encouraged. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So setting the context here of where we are as we continue our study in Acts chapter 10, if you weren't with us last week um, or those of us that might be joining us online right now, welcome to you guys as well. But last week we covered these two different Visions that God gave his people that were intertwined for this purpose that God has that he is initiating his work and he's the one that's growing his kingdom. The first vision we see is this vision that he gives to the centurion Cornelius. In Acts 10, verses one through eight, Cornelius gets this vision an angel of the Lord comes to him and basically says, hey, Cornelius, I would like you to send people to Joppa south of you, about 32 miles from where he's at in Caesarea, and bring Simon, also known as Peter, who's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, back to you because he has a message that you need to hear. And so that's the first part of the vision. The second part of the vision is that as Peter is praying, he gets this vision coming from heaven, of the sheet that comes down from heaven, with all these kind of clean and unclean animals, and Peter is told to get up, kill, and eat. And if you were here last week, you know that Peter refused three times, and in God's patience, God continues to work with Peter. But Peter hears the Holy Spirit, and he knows that he's not really sure what's going on yet, or how he's supposed to understand this vision that he's had, but the Holy Spirit tells him, these men who have shown up, From Caesarea, you need to go with them. And so we see that Peter does travel with them. So let's pick the story up in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 23, the second half of the verse. And I'll read through 29, and it says, the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you have sent me? So let's stop the story right there for a moment, and I would just like to highlight again God's patience in working his divine will and his interest in the kingdom and how patient he is with Peter. Because Peter has this vision, and yet he doesn't fully understand it. What we see here is he's now had two days on the road, we're told by the text, that they leave the next day after the men come from Caesarea, and they're traveling 32 miles north back up to, from Joppa to Caesarea, and they can't make it in one day, so they spend the night, and it says that the next day they arrive in Joppa. And I think it's just the Lord's patience to put Peter in a situation where he has to continue to wonder and wonder, what is God doing in my life? And God patiently allows him that time to learn God's plan for his life. There are four clues in the text that I'd love to highlight just for a moment. Back in chapter 10, verse 15, you see this thing where it says three times in the vision, the voice from heaven says, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. What you need to understand from that statement, it's the exact same language that a priest in the temple would have declared out loud for somebody who was ceremonially unclean and had gone through a purification process and is now declared pure in the sight of God. So Peter gets this message proclaimed in the same language three times that what you think is impure, speaking about this food, is actually been made pure. And what we begin to see is Peter's beginning to learn because he shows up at Cornelius' house and he says, I might not understand it all, but what I understand right now is that God has made clean that which I thought was unclean. And he wasn't necessarily just talking about Jewish dietary law and unclean food. He's telling us that the Gentiles are clean that under the cross, they're gonna have an opportunity for salvation just as the Jews. Now, I love God's timing in this because nothing's wasted on God, and it's no accident that he gets this vision and it happens in Joppa because if you know your Old Testament history, you know that Joppa is where Jonah ran when he didn't want God's good grace to reach his enemy, the Ninevites, And so he's on the run from God because he he knows God's compassionate, gracious heart to bring his enemies to salvation. And so he's on the run from God. And it's in that same city, years later, that God is going to grab a hold of Peter's heart and say, that which is divided, this Jew-Gentile divide, the person that you think is unclean, the person that you think is untouchable, That is the exact person that I'm going after. And so it's no accident that he gets this vision in Joppa. And then finally, this in verse 20, another clue given to Peter. It says, as the Holy Spirit's talking to Peter, it says, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate. Now, we hear that as like, okay, don't hesitate. Don't sit around. Get going. Get on the road. Make your way to Caesarea. But the actual language there in the Koine Greek, it has more of a meaning of don't make a distinction. Don't decide before you go that why would I go into a Gentile's home and so I'm not going. And so God has graciously given him all these clues and then gives him a two-day wandering along the path that God has for him to begin to figure out the work that God is doing. And so look back with me in chapter 10, verse 28 and 29, Peter says, "You were aware that it's not lawful for me to, for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anything impure or unclean." He says, this, "Look, I, I know that previously it was understood as unlawful for me as a Jew to enter your home as a Gentile. Now it wasn't against the Torah; it was not against the law for a Jew to come into the home of a Gentile." What was against the Torah was the dietary laws of, for the Jews to not eat unclean foods. And the Gentiles ate unclean foods. So what really had happened, it had become kind of a religious rite or rule to say to keep yourself as a good practicing Jew so that you're not defiled and eat unclean food. It's not good for you to associate with the Gentile and enjoy table fellowship with them. What they had done is written a law before the Torah law to make sure that they wouldn't accidentally cross the command or law that God had given. And so that's why he says, look, you know as well as I do, Cornelius, that it's against the law for me to come into your home. In fact, the historian Josephus says it this way, talking about the understanding in Peter's day. He says, keep yourself separate from the nations and do not eat with them And do not imitate their rights, nor associate yourself with them. But Peter's beginning to understand the vision was not just referring to unclean food, but referring to God's salvific work in the Gentiles. And yes, in this moment, God is lifting the restriction of the dietary laws in the Old Testament. He's abolishing those uh, rules through the new covenant in Christ. But more important than that, he's closing this divide relationally between Jews, God's chosen people, and the Gentiles who are now God's new chosen people as well. And that's good news for most of us because most of us here are from Gentile origin. Notice that this work Is God's divine desire. It's not Peter's, it's God's. And yet God is so gracious to work patiently His will into Peter's life. I think that's good news for us. We can recognize that this opportunity given to Cornelius is given to us. And in the same manner, God is going to work gracious with us as He has worked graciously with Peter. Now, there's an important point here as we go back into the text. Look with me in verse 30. Cornelius begins to share about his experience of why he sent for Peter. He says, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes, referring to an angel, a messenger of God, stood before me. And he said, Cornelius, get get up your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been remembered. Send to Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He's a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good for you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. I mean, this is a pastor's dream. This is Cornelius with an absolute hungry heart that says, I'm not sure I understand everything that's going on here, but God showed up, I was obedient, you have now come, I have gathered my family and my closest friends, and we're all just here on bated breath waiting for you to deliver the message of God. So what is it, Peter? What message do you have for me? Again, I said it last week, and I want to reiterate it again this week. God loves to work with hungry hearts. And this is a moment for us individually to take stock and say, where is my heart for God to show up in my life? And the good news is, however you answer that question with, I'm not really that interested I don't even know how I showed up today, to man, I am absolutely hungry and I want more of God. Wherever you are on that spectrum of the hunger of your heart for more of God in your life, God, as I read this story, is patient and willing to work with you exactly where you're at. What I want to highlight and come back to is this. I don't think it's an accident that before Peter preaches, he asks Cornelius, Hey, why am I here? What's taking place? Let's just highlight that for a moment and we'll come back to it. Now we get to the thrust of the passage starting in verse 34. I think this is the highlight, kind of the linchpin of the rest of Acts 10. Peter begins to speak and he says, I know, I I, I know, I now, got it, took a little while. That's the word now. No has a K. <laughs> I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what, um, and does what is right. Here's the big idea of the ending of Acts 10 that our God, who is faithful in his son Jesus Christ, does not show favoritism. He does not elevate the Jews and then leave the Gentiles left hanging. He doesn't choose one ethnicity over another. He doesn't choose one culture over another. He doesn't choose one nation over another. God does not play favorites. He does not discriminate against one by showing favor to another. He shows his favor in Jesus Christ to all. He does not elevate one ethnicity over another. We're told that God invites and accepts every nation, every race, every ethnicity into his plan of salvation. It's a picture of what you're going to see in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 10 where it says every tongue, tribe, and nation is going to be there before the lamb of the God, lamb of the Lord praising him and being part of God's heavenly choir of giving him praise just as we did this evening together in worship. You know, it does say that it's not just an open call to every person, that not every person is going to respond, I guess, is a better way for me to frame that because it still adheres to this idea of those that will rend their hearts, those that fear him, those that will do what's right. It's like the statement out of Deuteronomy 10, 12, where he's told the Israelites, what does the Lord your God ask of you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him and serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. But the crazy thing is, God is opening the door in Jesus Christ to the Gentiles just as he did with his call to the Jews. Stott says it this way, it didn't matter if you were a person born a Jew, a Roman, a Greek, or a Syrian. All are accepted by God. So God accepts the Gentiles, but the big question in this is, Will God's people to this point, the Jews, will they accept the Gentiles? Because I believe it's hard. We, we read this, that Peter makes this declaration in verse 34 and 35. I now realize that my God does not show favoritism, but accepts everybody who fears him and does what is right. It's this one verse buried in this longer narrative, and it'd be easy for us to read it and kind of turn the page because we, 2,000 years later, are, as I said before, mostly a Gentile-believing church. We have walked through this door. It's not new news, but travel back with me for a moment, and I'm being purposeful here. There's a reason for this. If we would be reminded of how strong the national and ethnic identity of the Jews really was. They had a collective history of suffering and deliverance. Their identity of Israel was forged in slavery in Egypt. It was defined by God's deliverance in the Exodus. It was codified in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and it was personalized in the leading in the desert. It was assured by God's promise of a promised land. It was affirmed through the exile and reaffirmed in Israel's return. It was promised an eternal throne and reign through the line of David. It was confirmed through the voice of the prophets. It was established by the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, and realized in his death and resurrection. And the reason I go into all of that is because to this point, the Jews are living with there's an us and there's a them. And God, in his moment, saying, I don't show favoritism, is calling his new church, his new bride, to understand that it's not an us and a them. There's only a we. We who have the grace of Jesus Christ given to us. All the other things that we can use to divide ourselves and put up walls and barriers are broken down. They could have said, We have Yahweh, they have idols. We have the law, they don't have the law. We have God's promise, they don't. God is on our side, he's not on their side. We will be redeemed, they will be destroyed. We have the Messiah, they don't have the Messiah. We are God's chosen and they are not. See, up to this point, there's an entrenched prejudice In God's people. And in this moment, in this verse, God is bursting forth and breaking through that entrenched prejudice and saying that this new church, for it to be truly multiracial and multicultural society, that God had to weed out of his people this entrenched prejudice. Now, for us today, I don't think you and I walk around and think that we are racist. I don't think we identify with that. We have seen racist acts in the last two years with deaths that should not have happened, whether it be George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Amon Arbery. And yet, when we look at that, we see the heinous act, the, the lack of protection under the law that should have been afforded to a brother or a sister. And while we might not take a look and see that, man, I have discrimination in my own heart, I think what we can look at is, say, where I went last week, which is, is there anyone in your life right now that you disdain? Is there any group of people, even politically, is there a group of people at school or at work? Anywhere where you and I have in our hearts a a, a disdain for people for whatever reason, wherever we have disdain, you and I have built this us versus them. And wherever we live with that kind of perspective, it is ripe for us to live with entrenched prejudice. And this is where God's saying, there is no room for this in my house, within my family because I don't show favoritism. So we have to ask ourselves, is there anybody that we're holding currently in disdain and allow God to do some work there? The second thing I think we need to look at, I would call exceptionalism. It's this idea of you and I, that our understanding, that our perspective, that our customs, that our ways are exceptional compared to others. And I think when we look at different cultures and we look at different countries and we look at the difference of ethnicity that we have within the family of God, I I, I think many of us necessarily don't struggle with uh, prejudice or racism. I think we struggle struggle with exceptionalism. This idea of my view of the right way to do everything is in fact the right way to do everything. it's, It's kind of the water we swim in as Americans. We've been taught since we were knee high that America does everything better and faster and cheaper and smarter with a better outcome. Yay for us! And I think it seeps into our understanding as followers of Jesus Christ and his church. And I think if we're going to be a place that is truly inviting all of God's beautiful and wonderful ethnicities to the table, to work together in partnership and in fellowship, it means that you and I have to examine where we live with exceptionalism because where exceptionalism leads us is to a lack of listening, to a lack of learning, and we don't um, truly, I think, reflect the goodness of God and we stop valuing another brother or sister. And this is where it's good to go back and be reminded that Peter didn't really get what God was doing until he saw God's work in Cornelius, the centurion Gentile. Maybe you aren't gonna get where you're hoping to go in your growth with God until you learn from somebody who is different than you, who's had a different upbringing, a different background, sees things from a different perspective, I'm not saying we don't have convictions. We all have convictions of things we're for and things we're against, but we can't allow those convictions to grow into places where there's an us, them, and we stop learning from somebody who is different from us. This is the message that God is trying to bring to his people. The question becomes, will you and I do the deeper work when well, we look at the places where we see and recognize that there's some people we hold in disdain, when well, we process in our prayers the idea of exceptionalism and maybe consider that our ways and the things that we want aren't actually what God has in store for his church at Coastline and more broadly. So I love that Peter is willing to learn from Cornelius before he begins to share. Now, what brings this all in unity? Yeah, we're different. So how do we ever think the world has struggled to bring racial reconciliation and to do it well, and and there are a lot of ideas as to how to best do that and how important it is and not, but... What I know is that the church has an opportunity to reflect back to the world because we have the greatest joining agent there is in Jesus Christ. Through all of our difference of the things that we're for and against, we can always come back to we celebrate Christ and him crucified together. So we are a church that can stand on issues and things where we might not see eye to eye. But as long as we proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified and the Christ that we see in the scriptures, we have this joining force. Because in Peter's message, you see in verse 36, look with me. In his basic summary statement, he says, You know the message God sent the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is what? Lord of all. Jesus reigns supreme over all the things that you and I can't figure out together. Isn't that good news? It's what keeps us at the table of relationship when we disagree. It's what keeps us at the table of relationship when we can't figure it out. It's what keeps us at the table of relationship when things are hard and the chips are down. Jesus is Lord of all. In fact, if I summarize this message that Peter gives, Peter in verse 36 says that Jesus is Lord of all, and then in verse 42 he says Jesus is judge of all, the living and the dead of everyone who has ever lived on this earth. And then in verse 43 he says Jesus is the Savior of all. Look with me in verse 43 says all the prophets of the Old Testament testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And that's why we can come to the table and work together because we are all sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Nobody got in through another door. Nobody got in through a back gate. We all came through the door of I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. And you see it amplified in Peter's life when Cornelius tries to raise him on a pedestal and bow down at his feet. He says, no, no, no. I am just a man just like you. And God has chosen to partner with me. What matters is not my opinion or approach. What matters is the message of God given to us through Jesus Christ. That he is Lord of all, that he is judge of all, and that he is savior of all. And this is going to unite God's church and closed the divide between Jew and Gentile. Okay, here comes the final point, and I think the really hard work. In verse 44 through 48, listen to this. He says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jewish believers, who came with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of them being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that they ask Peter to stay with them for a few days. So God gives the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles and they speak in tongues just like we see in Acts chapter 2 when the new covenant comes upon God's people and the church is born. And the Jewish believers are astonished going, whoa, God is opening up the same door and, and letting the Gentiles come in who we thought were defiled. And Peter says in the beginning, hey, I am called to associate with you. I can come into your presence. And now they have to wrestle with this reality that God has accepted them, that he is offering them salvation, and that they believe and the Holy Spirit comes. And the fact that the Holy Spirit came on them, Peter says, well, if God has shown up and saved them and accepted them, then we need to as well. And friends, that's what baptism is. See, God has saved and accepted the Gentiles. And now they begin this life of faith. And now the Jewish church has to move with God and say, God has accepted them, and we have to as well. And it's signified in baptism. When you are baptized, it's this reality that you have died and risen again, that you have this faith in Jesus Christ, but it's also this message that you are part of God's family called the church. And so God is calling Peter, and you're gonna see later on as we continue in Acts and in the Council of Jerusalem, that they wrestle with this idea that God has saved the Jews, so now we not only need to associate with them, and not only do we need to accept them into the church and into faith, but we need to embrace them as brothers and sisters in God's family. There's no longer in us them It really, really has to be a a we. And the challenge lays before us as well, that we have received this benefit into faith, and are we willing to embrace others and invite them into the table of our church? Because if it's one thing I know, it's that the stronger a bond of relationship we have, sometimes that makes it even more hard to allow people in. See, the Jews had these great bonds together, and now they had to go through the discomfort of following Jesus and letting other people in to their church who were different than them. Which means that they were going to mess up the beautiful thing that they had. And some of us have really tight bonds. we were planted out of the same church. Some of us carry the same joys and the same scars from that experience. And we have the same passion for Coastline. But the question for us remains is will we invite others in to not only be accepted and, and to be a part, but to be embraced as a full member of the family of God represented here at Coastline? That's tough work, if we're honest. Because other people come in and they mess stuff up. They change your church. See, our bonds can be a bridge to other people. Or they can be a wall to keep other people out. And it's only in our individual hearts will we receive the message that Peter received. And if we've received salvation, will we say that that salvation is for everyone, regardless of your ethnicity or nation or culture or background, you're invited in. I love Albert Tate's language in this area, where he says, look, all of us are invited into the dinner table to sit, to take space, to talk, to discuss, to help shape and to help serve the family of God. So Coastline, we have shared bonds, much like the Jews had, (laughs) as we've been this newly planted church. The challenge for us is, will we look into our hearts and see, do we carry any disdain, allow God to do work there, And then to be the kind of people that say, you look different than me, and you think different than me, instead of allowing that to scare me, we're going to sit down at the table, and we're going to have a conversation, and under the grace of Jesus Christ, we're going to trust that you and I build something more beautiful together. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your patience in working with Peter, This was your idea. This was not his. And as we continue on in the book of Acts, we're going to see that your people struggled with this, just as we do. And yet I'm inviting Holy Spirit, come and do the deeper work in our hearts to help us see where we contribute to an us-them perspective, where you want to break that down and bring what is different together. doesn't mean we believe the same thing and all have the same thoughts. But we believe that under the good news of Jesus Christ and the grace that you have afforded us in your death and resurrection, that your kingdom is not at risk and that your, our church is better with being people who say, come in, come share the bonds that God has already forged here and add to them and grow them. Father, we pray that Coastline, would be a church that represents your heartbeat in this. That every tongue, every tribe, and every nation would be not only accepted and invited in, but embraced, invited to help shape and serve the body of Christ called the church. That we might reflect to the world the reality that, God, you are still in the business of bringing that which is divided together and saving men and women under the great banner of Jesus Christ and him crucified. God, continue your work in us and through us that we might represent your heartbeat to the South Bay. In your name we pray, amen.